This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Aloha, ladies and gentlemen. Jeremy Vaney here, filling in for Whitley Strieber, yet again on Dreamland. Um, so, this is part two of a solo episode, for which you do not have to have seen part one. Um, I thank everyone who has responded to this. Um, sure, there are those who hate watch, which is fun. But for the most part, feedback has been enormously positive and heartening. And by that, I mean, especially the people who say, I kind of understand what you're saying, but I kind of don't, but I'm willing to hear it out. Or there's something about it that kind of rings true, even though I don't quite get everything you're saying. I love that. Um, so I will try to articulate something that is uh, big and broad in a relatively short amount of time here. Um, and I, I guess just if you missed the last episode, I made the bold brash claim that there is no such thing as an alien. And of course there were people who just read the title and then pontificated and based on that or went off about how how dare I? I'm so wrong and arrogant and narcissistic and blah. But uh, if you'd actually watched the episode, uh, that might have helped, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I'll just say in brief here, the reason we think that there are aliens um, is because we have this separate self sense, this self identity divorced from one another. We don't we're not in touch with our interconnecting nature generally. Nature cultures are. Westernized people are not. Um, other peoples, <laughs> whoever essentially lives in a giant society, probably not. In an empire, in Russia, China, whatever it is. Um, you know, because I say westernized and then people are like, you know, want to jump on me about, oh, westernization, other people do it too. Other people do it too, but let's look at you. Let's look at what we know. You're not these other people. You're you. So um, the point is the globe is essentially run and ruined by this self-sense that isn't wholly who we are. It's this partial, divorced, um, I would say sick sense of self that has become in love with its illness. And so we call all of that illness stuff human nature. We just go, oh, it's human nature. And then we do art and movies and poems and all this stuff, telling ourselves, you know, we'll be good next time. <laughs> we have ideals and saviors and stuff that we put on pedestals outside of us. We'll get there-ish. We'll be like that, but we're never going to actually be that. Well, that's wrong. Uh, and I know that that's wrong not from book learning, not from reading, not from a whole bunch of study. You probably have studied things that are called spiritual more than I have. Um, you probably not studied UFOs and aliens stuff more than I have, because I'm probably right there with you. We're probably on par. Um, but as far as mysticism and all that religious stuff, yeah, you've read more than I have, for sure, if you've read anything at all, because <laughs> I've read a handful of books. Um, so what I'm talking about is from first-hand experience. And what I know firsthand is that we ain't what we think we are. 
and that the properly contextualized human being, when they're living their healthy, holist life, um, isn't brain in charge, isn't the objective, logical, I need data, 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 I'm a robot, observer, observed person. It's interconnecting heart. It's heart person. Who then uses brain as a tool? Not tool. The brain as a you know doesn't really use the heart as a tool, except as a to manipulate people. <laughs> uh, the brain essentially like blocks out heart as much as possible because it's a dysfunction. That's a dysfunctional inward um, dynamic that we have going on. We're not organized. We're disorganized inside. And so what I'm talking about is the organized, the properly, rightly organized human being um, does not look like what we look like, does not produce the world that we have produced, does not sit on the edge of its own sword and go, hmm, I wonder if we're sitting on the edge of our own sword. How can I make money off this? Um, no. So any being coming here, even if they were from another planet, wouldn't be alien. They wouldn't look like that. Be, you know, presumably they would be advanced. We want that to mean scientifically advanced, but what it really advanced means is they would be their own whole expression of themselves. And I audaciously say, or else their planet would not let them go because the planet is alive. <laughs> we are the sentience of this planet. Um, and so... Why would Earth allow us to go out as we are? Like, we want to go to Mars, we want to go to all these places. Um, that ain't going to happen because we're sick. And so what sick heals or dies? These are the consequences. It's not a judgment. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, <laughs> but, but that's it. So And so it would be with other planets because um, although they would not be like us in the sense of uh, how we live day to day, I do believe consciousness does have a cap in the sense that there is the universal oneness-y thing, right? And so uh, anyone who is seriously going to be visiting anywhere is going to be of that mind. They're not going to want to meet our president. They're not going to, I don't care what David Grush has said. <laughs> They're not going to crash here on purpose or by accident or pollute and then like form deals with our government. Like that's just not, that's not a thing. And even if they're time travelers, you know, the, the assumption is, is that what? They're just like us, but they've got, you know, some other handle on physics. Um, it just doesn't hold uh, in terms of our own health. And as I said in the last episode, what, as I demonstrated, giving examples from my own life, I could have used a lot of things, but I use my own life because I like to, you know, be the victim <laughs> of my own examples. Uh, it doesn't even make sense in terms of our relationship with, if you want to call it that, with these entities or with this intelligence. Like, it, it's personal. And... Uh, we see that over and over again. And I said this to someone, um, on one of the subscribers on an unknown country. Um, and I think it bears repeating, which is, you know, us, we who are in ufology like to say to the rest of the world, 
who say, ah, UFOs, that's garbage. And we say, well, but if just one of them, because they say like, oh, 80 or 90% of them are explainable, right? Let's say 90. 90, 90 of them are explainable. 90% uh, of them are explainable. Um, therefore, let's ignore it because they're probably all explainable. They're just waiting to be explained. And then you would naturally come back with, well, if just one of them is a non-human craft, that's it, game over, right? Um, if just one example of an object breaking what we consider to be the laws of physics exists, then our sense of physics, our so-called laws, are not laws, right? We say that. That, that. You've heard that a million times. You've probably used it as a defense in conversation. And what I'm saying is that is correct. Now let's see that this also applies to how we do look at the phenomenon. So I used the example that Whitley has used of himself, I think, in the thread. Um, he, he, he had said on Weaponized, that show Weaponized, Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp, where he had said um, he wanted these beings, the visitors, to show up for Anne Streber, his wife. And so he asked them to, and they showed up while they were in a hot tub outdoors. They showed up overhead. First, it was this sort of mechanical sound, this sort of annoying mechanical sound. And then they look up and they see, hovering over them, uh, a group of logs bound together by Christmas lights. And that reminds me of my old broadcast partner, rest his soul, Jeff Ritzman, um, was not just an experiencer, he was also um, a ufologist at one point early on. And so he would investigate cases. And the ones that he found to be the most realistic were the most outlandish. Like there was somebody he'd said who saw an upside down uh, Starship Enterprise. There was another person who saw, I think it was like an 18-wheeler, like a Mack truck in the sky. And... He said these people were honest, you know, like they saw this clearly. It freaked them out. They know it sounds stupid. They, you know, who are they going to tell? And so my question to you then, getting back to the question of if just one of these things, well, if just one of these events is highly strange like that and personalized to the person, then how many, you know, if just one, then is it aliens? coming and doing cold contact handshake deals with the government things, right? Like that doesn't make sense. You have to give it up. Eventually you have to give up the narrative that you have in mind because the narrative you have in mind is based on the known. And we're talking about the unknown. I would argue we're talking about ultimately the unknowable, um, which isn't to say we can't talk about any of it. We can't articulate it, but it is to say that to engage this intelligence as equals, we have to come from a completely other stage of mind. Uh, the bird has to peck its way out of the shell on this one. We can't just sit in the shell and hook up an HDTV and have a library of books and go, look, I'm learning things, I'm watching things, um, I'm alive. <laughs> no, no, you, you, you know, like the outside of the egg can't be a hypothetical. It can't just be something that you pontificate on forever because that's not actually a mystery. That's not the mystery. Um, you can be that. In fact, you're supposed to. You're supposed to fly. You're not supposed to set up flight as an ideal. 
um, or give it to some sort of holy uh, visage, a god, um, a savior, an angel, a demon, or whatever, like an alien, um, that's not in this metaphor. <laughs> that's not for um, for an idealized uh, idol. That's what we're to be if we're to be our whole selves. So, unfortunately, no amount of telling you this cracks the egg in a way where you live. Because just like a bird, let's stick with the analogy because it kind of works. Like, you can't open a bird egg, or you shouldn't. The bird, if it's to live, it's building up its muscle and its resistance and all that by pecking its way out of the shell. Uh, so you can't do it for it. You can only point to that there is the outside and it needs to do it. That's all you can do. So aliens coming and having a sit-down chat with us about it won't do it even. Me talking to you about it won't do it even. But we need to talk about it um, so that you know that it's a reality because we've so given in to the illusions we've put up in our shell <laughs> uh, that we think they mean something and we become protective of the shell, ironically. Uh, and so when a guy like me comes along who, um, especially if I'm younger than you, but definitely if you're more well-read than I am on these subjects, um, you get defensive because who the hell am I, right? except that what we're going to talk about doesn't involve book learning, isn't about learning at all. I know we've set up life as though, isn't life about learning? Isn't everything about learning and evolving? And no, it is not. There are certain things, most things, for which that's good and necessary and correct. This so-called spiritual non-dual timelessness is not one of them. And that's what we're going to be getting into. And I'm going to try to parse out for you what is my own experience of it versus what is my hypothesis about the intelligence. And all of these things are, are, you see how they all go together? Like this idea that we can't, oh, you're just trying to make this spiritual. It's like, no, what I'm trying to point out is that who you are is not the whole picture of who you are. It's this unhealthy, partial creature <laughs> who has said, ah, this is it. And therefore, I expect anyone who comes from another realm to be like this, to be relatable in this way, um, but just have some better technology or something. Like, that's the way in which we can envision that we're different, is if they're better at something than we are. And we can just learn that. <laughs> but... Oh, that ain't how this works. So, okay. And it doesn't work that way. And you know that way because you know that because of the example I just gave of Whitley Strieber with the thing hovering over with the logs and the upside down, <laughs> the upside down enterprise. Uh, you know, you go down the list of experiencers who have had experiences and there's always either something blatantly in your face, not right about it, or something subtly not right about it. Um, I think always. I would be hard-pressed to find something that isn't that way. Um, I'm sure there's something that exists out there that isn't that way that you can point to, but again, how many can you point to that are the examples I'm talking about where you have to admit the surface narrative 
is just that, a surface narrative, is a mask hiding something deeper and broader and more uh, interconnecting with us, period, than cold aliens who are just visiting here. Okay, so um, let's rewind. Who am I in this to be talking about this in the first place? Well, first, I'm an experiencer. I used to believe I might be an alien abductee or visitors or whatever, um, but that didn't hold, didn't, I mean, obviously there's another intelligence involved. Um, so for those who think that I'm saying that this is all one intelligence, I mean, yeah, in the general sense that everything is one, but I'm not saying that they are merely some re inward reflection of us or something like that. No, I'm saying they're autonomous, but, but we're conjoined. And here's where we're going. First, I'm an experiencer. Then I do some work <laughs> on myself that essentially um, whittles me down. <sighs> okay. This is difficult because I don't know how much we want to talk about in this. Um, and you know what, while I'm just babbling at you, um, feel free to let me know if you, by the end of this, you want to hear more and you want it to be more formal, more like a 101 class or something, um, even though there's nothing to learn. Uh, but if you want it more like in that format of like, okay, I'm going to formally do this now in sort of seminar form. Uh, I've been thinking about doing that. I don't know if I want to do it for this show. Um, I would like it to live for free on the internet. If I could work that out with Whitley, okay, um, for unknown country or something. If not, you know, I'm willing to do it on my own. I just um, let me know if you're interested in that by the end of this, if you're interested in that. So then, because I'm not going to do that long form thing now, I'll just say in brief. I had a number of understandings that led me to... Mm, what would you say? Positively negate myself. So I would look at my own personal issues and I would try to peel away at them like layers of an onion. So instead of just feeling hurt by something, for instance, I would try to see why it is that I feel that hurt, like what it is about me that feels hurt about something specific over and over again, like a pattern of behavior. Um, like, let's just say it's a, you know, how you are with the opposite sex, or if you're, you know, gay or bisexual or whatever, with your own sex, you know, whatever you're attracted, whoever you're attracted to, <laughs> um, what, it, what are the repetitive toxic patterns of behavior? And why is that in your life? Why do you work that way? Not just allow it, but why are you that way? And if you, and that's just an example, you can take anything in your life and look at it and go, okay, why am I that way? And you look at why it hurts personally, but when you get down past there, you get to like, okay, but why do I react this way? Is it because, and you can go down the list, because I was bullied at school, because I saw how my parents were with each other, and they fought a lot, and they, so that formed, you know, these were my role models or the things that shocked me into, you know, behaving this way all the time. 
And then you break that down further, like, okay, if it's my parents, what do I know about my parents? You know, how were they raised? Why did they get into a relationship like this? What were my, what were my dad's parents like? What were my mom's parents like? What must it have been like to have been raised that way in their generation? Do I know anything about my great-grandparents? Like, what's it like to come over on a boat? You know, like, you just go down the list of things, and by the time you're done peeling them away, you're done peeling yourself away, you know, you're not just left with some sort of, like, psychological uh, purity, like all your problems are gone. You're, it's like that disconnection to humanity is erased, too. Like, you are now back in heart where you belong because you see deeply that, oh, there is no ending to this. These aren't actually my own personal problems. These hurts come up in my parents, in my grandparents, in their parents, in a bully who's, you know, abused by their parents, who suffered abuse by their parents, whatever it is, right? Like, there's no going back for far enough until you realize this is humanity. This is what we do. It just is. And then suddenly you're not alone. <laughs> Suddenly, it's not you with a problem. The problem is all of us. It's what we are. And when you see it, when you have clarity about, clarity about it, just like anything else, the problem is no more. Now, when this happens to you, when it happened to me, you become a bright-eyed, giggly, happy person. And... Um, then everyone around you thinks you've had a mental breakdown, and you kind of have, <laughs> but just not in the way that they think of a mental breakdown. Um, but if you get stuck there, there's a problem, because you are still you. There is still you there, it's just that you have been recontextualized. So yes, you're in more healthy inner organization uh, than you just were, and that feels like enlightenment because you don't know anything else, and because you're feeling great, and because you're understanding everyone, and you have compassion. Not just passion for the few, but compassion, the all-encompassing passion for all. And that feels like enlightenment. Um, and this is what I kind of tried to say in the last episode, which is like, nature cultures, this isn't to put them on a pedestal or anything, it's just the truth. They don't have that full separate self-sense that we have, so they don't have to go through that. So, eh. <laughs> like, there is no big enlightening moment in that for them, right? Um, but for us, there is, and so we think we're enlightened, and so then we may make the mistake of then, like, going and being teachers or something. And that's where you, you start to see, like, the real, like, the cult leaders who have had some sort of experience. You know, you always hear this, like, you can't deny their experience, but they're also crazy or depraved or something like the toxicity of thinking you're enlightened uh having had an experience like that or, or having become someone sort of different as a result of being healthy has its own because we don't have a culture that embraces that and understands that it's just the countdown to decay <laughs> uh, unless you're very careful unless you really watch yourself so in my case uh, for a while, I thought, uh, okay, um, I'm enlightened. Like, this must be it, but it doesn't feel like it. And after a while, you start to get, like, this isn't it. There's still something, like, I'm still 
there's that feeling of like I'm still missing something. And um, this was when I was, uh, you know, all of this sort of came about through reading Jiddu Krishnamurti books. And who Jiddu Krishnamurti is and why I would be reading those books is a whole other bunch of stories. But just know I'm reading Krishnamurti, who has said all of this, you know, in the most pure, rational way possible, which to my mind originally was as angering and triggering as any hate watcher watching me uh, because it was antithetical to who I was, what he was saying. <laughs> uh, but once I sort of got it, I was like, okay. And then I did the positive negation stuff on me, <laughs> uh, which I don't think he necessarily said to do, but I just decided, okay, I'll take positive negation, which he was using in terms of there are certain things that are not, um, that are not in the field of thought, such as beauty, love, truth. And so because they're not in the field of thought, you can't define them. You can only know them by negating what we consider to be truth, love. So you peel away the layers of our definitions of these things. And if such a thing exists, it will be the case. You will be that. I took that and sort of just did it on my own psychological baggage. Um, so one fine day, I'm sitting on the couch, I'm reading Juju Krishnamurti in my East Village apartment in New York, and uh, I just got that I'm that guy. I'm the guy now who is the book learn learned guy. The guy who is feeling like he's transcended something, feeling like he, you know, whatever that is. I'm that guy who gets it intellectually, feels it, but isn't it because... I'm still that guy. <laughs> I'm still searching. I'm still reading. I'm still, that is my way of not being truth is by being close enough to feel it, um, having some insights and stuff like that and, and reading about it and knowing it. I've become that guy. And once I got that, just that little bit, um, my sense of self was completely vanished. There was nothingness. And for that moment of nothingness, um, an energy rose from my spine or up my spine. My head started to spin around on its own like this, like an exercise. If you're not watching on YouTube and you're just hearing me, my head is spinning like doing an exercise. And, you know, and then I'm back and I'm, you know, in this, with this energy. And of course, all I have in my upbringing to compare this to is like demon possession. Like, why would my body be moving and I'm not moving it? Oh, God, what have I gotten myself into? So I'm going to do the long story short here, folks. This is actually the long story short, believe it or not. Um, after some time <laughs> of allowing this energy to maneuver, years or however long it was, um, it... It developed its, it, it started doing its own, it would do things to me. For instance, Tai Chi, what looks like Tai Chi, what looks like yoga, what look like whirling dervish twirls, what look like common exercises, what look like, uh, all, you know, get on a list of things it looks like. I think I talked about some of it in the last episode, some of the embarrassing stuff. It did that. It did a bunch of psychic awakening stuff. So it did this, all these movements. It also did psychic awakenings. There was a time of clairvoyance. There was a time of clairaudio. 
There was a time of visions. There was a time when certain people out in the world started coming up to me and interacting with me in some sort of like straight out of a sci-fi movie way, uh, you know, to almost as if there is a secret society of these people or something or like secretly enlightened. And, you know, they know that I know, even though I don't know, you know, like that sort of thing. Um, and I just went through this. Like, I didn't want to stop at anything and be like, now I'm a, psychic now i'm a shaman now i'm aware i want to know where this thing was going so i never made the mistake of stopping to be any of these things to be back in thought and in the known and in answers and safety the comfort of answers um i just let this play out uh and eventually <laughs> there came Three events that were not this energy, but were a different type of energy. So when I say that this energy rose up in my spine, it was just the, that initial time that the energy rose up in my spine. Ever since then, and, and until now even, um, this energy is, is just, is me. It's perpetually there. And I used to think it was the body speaking its own language. Like I played with these ideas. First it was like, oh God, I'm possessed, help. Then it was, the body must have its own language of these healthy things, yoga and, and meditation and all of these sorts of things that I knew nothing about. Uh, it must just do this on its own when one is alive in this way. Somebody jotted it down long ago, said, here, some exercises. Here's yoga. This will get you to enlightenment, even though all of this came to me after the fact. Um, that must be what it is. The body speaks its own language and its own movements. And you can either let it happen naturally on its own, or you can, um, you know, like pay, <laughs> pay for somebody to teach you some stuff. Um, and while I do understand that the body has its own natural language, I still don't think that that answers it. That's not what this energy is. You know, the so-called, what people call Kundalini energy, although that's sort of been bastardized now, six ways from Sunday. Um, uh, so, okay, all of this is to say that that energy rising that first time was just the once. Then it was perpetually, ever-presently the case. If I just shut up for a split second, it'll come active and do whatever healthy thing it needs to do. Um, but then there's another energy which... I cannot just shut up and access. I've only experienced it three times. And all three times, the beginning of the experience is the same. And it feels as though there is a surgeon <laughs> doing a precise surgical, you know, cut, like a slit, like a gill or something opens up at the base of the spine and this other energy comes beating in all up and down the backside from head to toe. And it feels like, although you're not, it feels like it's so palpable, like you're levitating on this beating energy. And it feels like complete bliss. Uh, and then, you know, and then it, it leaves the same way. It sort of swoops into the body and then it washes back out. High tide, low tide, I don't know. And then the slit seals itself back up and you can feel it. It's, you know, there's a component to it where you can feel it opening and closing. 
And I don't want to move. When that happens, I don't want to move because I don't know if I'll screw something up. Like, it feels like that precise. Like, don't do anything. And I, like I said, I felt this three times. The first time was simply that, just the energy. The second time was a different event that we will not talk about because I don't want to get sidetracked. And the third time was, uh, I guess it's important to note that I went to bed that entire week I'd had a mysterious uh, hell of a headache. Not all the time, just at certain moments. Like this pounding, awful headache. Um, and that's important because you'll see. So I got into bed with this awful headache. But anyway, at some point I got up, I went to the bathroom, I came back to bed. By the time this event ended, it was six, like a little past six in the morning. Because I jotted it down, I jumped out of bed and jotted it down. Uh, so it was around then that I got up, I'm assuming, went to the bathroom, went back to bed, rolled over on my, uh, on my left side and, you know, shut my eyes to go back to sleep. And fairly immediately there was like, it was bright behind my eyelids as if someone had like shown a spotlight in the bedroom, but I didn't open my eyes and I felt the slit open. And it felt this time, which it did not feel the first two times, as though there were people in the room with me. Like I wasn't alone. There were like invisible people in the room with me, like surrounding me, which wouldn't make any sense because my bed is against a wall. So they couldn't be surrounding me. Uh, you know what I mean? Like if this were like a physical people in the room. But I'm just telling you what it felt like. Felt like that. Slit opens up. Uh, beating energy washes in. And then washes out. And instead of the slit closing back out, my sense of existence, me, self, soul, whatever you want to call it, comes out with it. Uh, so I actually feel myself leaving the body through the slit, but then uh, there's nothing for however long that is. Nothingness. There's just nothing. And then there's something. <laughs> that something is uh, like a like a two-dimensional circle of water over black. It's not a circle of water, but it it's clear. I mean, it's defined, but it's clear. So it's kind of like water, I guess is what I'm getting at, a circle that starts expanding in all directions over blackness. And now because there's not nothingness, there is my sense of awareness in this. And so I am aware that I'm seeing this and I'm aware my, of myself as that. And as it's stretching, I'm also, even though I just left my body, presumably aware of the feeling of it in my own head. Like it feels as though something in my brain is expanding and about to snap. And I'm thinking in that moment, like, Oh God, I'm having an aneurysm. Like something's going to snap and I'm going to die. This is it. So I'm watching this, this clear circle expand over blackness, and it does snap. But in the snap, right, what would be the center of this is a tiny, you know, ball of light. And from that tiny ball of light, the entire universe comes into existence. And this is easy to say, but it's actually hard, probably hard to conceptualize. Now I'm, I am that universe. I'm aware of me. As a, you know, I'm aware of 
that I'm in bed, but I'm also, I am the universe and I am each thing in the universe. So when I'm watching, for instance, rock jettisoning through space now, I am that rock. I am that space. I am the force of resistance. You know, I am all of these elements of the universe. And when I say that, I don't just mean that I feel as though I connect with them in the way one feels compassion for everybody and the interconnecting nature of all things, right? I'm talking about, I am seeing through the quote unquote eyes from the perspective of each and every aspect of the universe all at once, which is really hard to explain how that's possible because we only got the two eyes, right? And the closest I can come to is like, unfortunately, like a common house fly has a segmented eye. <laughs> so picture like a bunch of cameras, <laughs> a bunch of little eyeballs forming one eye where you're seeing wholly out of each thing. Maybe like that. I don't know. That's as close as I can come. But that's what it is. I'm seeing all of this and I am all of this all at once. The I am. Also, what I am is spirit riding through all of this, riding through the toy box of its own mind is kind of the way I put it. And what that feels like is a smile on a wind. If you, like if you drew a cartoon of that, it would just be the blur of wind rushing through the universe at, you know, light speed or whatever speed with a smile on its face, like no face, just a smile. Just doing that, just going like on a roller coaster, going through, rushing through everything. Uh, and, the, and so this became more and more. There were, you know, sort of like at some point, oh boy, I was um, a son giving light unto the nearest rock that could take it. And then life comes up from that rock, from that, that earth and... Now I am, you know, I see the ocean and the trees and I am that ocean and I am those trees and the wind in the trees and the spirit riding on the ocean through the trees and all of it. Had this amazing experience <laughs> and uh, at the end of it, my perception settled on this large, bright red planet that I'd be tempted to say is Mars, except... It, it's at least redder than uh, any of the pictures I've seen of Mars. But in any event, closes in, a, you know, the sort of the visual element of this, hones in on the planet. And I hear this female voice who I've heard in abductions, who uh, I talked about in the last episode, say, do we humans not understand that other planets cannot help us if we continue to block them out and kill ourselves? And all the while, I'm hearing in the background, uh, like a chorus of voices, maybe, saying, um, oh God, I can't remember the book title exactly, but I think it was talking to extraterrestrials. Lizette Larkins talking to extraterrestrials over and over at high speed. Lizette Larkins talking to extraterrestrials. Lizette Larkins talking to extraterrestrials. Over and over and over in the background. So I'm hearing the alien voice woman, <laughs> the alien woman voice. I'm hearing this book by this author who I had heard on Dreamland, actually. I've never read her stuff, and she didn't sound like anything I would care about. And at this point, me, just as my little tiny self in the background, is going, oh, God, I'm dying. Like, I've got I've to get back into my body somehow. 
So I concentrate on the headache because the body still has the headache. So I concentrate on the headache, as it, which acts as the anchor point to this. So because I'm concentrating on the headache, which I assume is because I'm concentrating on the body, I come back into my body. And as I come back into my body, it's like I'm loosely climbing, you know, sort of, or swimming or something up. Like I can see my bones, I can see my blood back, you know, it's kind of gross, up into uh, my forehead or my, my head somewhere in here. Um, and when I reach there, the slit closes up and I jump out of bed <laughs> and I start pacing around like a caged animal and I'm like, oh my God, you know, what do I, and I jot down what the woman said and I jot down the time and all of that. And then of course I call my dad to tell him what had just happened because I'm stupid. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I know my dad will want to know. And he's just like, Jer, go back to sleep. You sound crazy. Um, but I can't remember exactly, maybe a couple of weeks later or something. Um, as I'm pondering this stuff and wondering, what does the Lizette Larkins thing have to do with it? What does this contact message have to do with it? Because the message is pretty, you got to admit, that's pretty awful. <laughs> like, some of you are probably like, yes, blackout plants, Jeremy. Don't you see? They're telling you. Channel, channeling. And actually, that's kind of what I was thinking this is. Like, oh, God. Please tell me this isn't going to be some contactee, you must channel aliens thing. Um, but the Lizette Larkins thing, I think, I think I tried to get in contact with her first. Because at this point, I'm writing for UFO Magazine. And I think I told Nancy Burns at UFO Magazine about this. And uh, she had, or, or I asked her, do you have Lizette Larkins' contact information? And she gave it to me. And so... I wrote to Lizette Larkins. I told her all of this. And I said, do you have any memory of this? Because my thinking is like, wait, what if Lizette Larkins is that female voice? What if she's been involved this entire time in my life as this disincarnate voice that I've associated with visitors or aliens or whatever this is? What if that's her? Um, and so I wrote to her and told her all of this and she wrote back something like, well, I have no memory of that ever happening, but lots of people come to visit me out of body in the middle of the night or something. So maybe, who knows, keep hope alive. I, you know, something like that. And I was just like, eh, never mind. But then a funny thing happened. The learning annex in New York called and said, uh, hey, we heard that you're um, a public speaker or a teacher or something in, in uh, talk about aliens and, and all that. Could you teach a course for the learning annex? And I'm thinking like, where have you heard that? Cause I don't even think I was podcasting at this point. I mean, I had the column at UFO magazine, but I wasn't a public speaker by any stretch, but I was like, sure, I think I could do it. They're like, great. Because there's this uh, course, uh, talking to extraterrestrials that used to be taught by Lizette something or rather out of Canada. And I was like, that wouldn't be Lizette Larkins by any chance, would it? And they were like, yeah, you've heard of her? And I'm like, yes, you're not going to believe this. And then I babbled in this woman's ear. <laughs> so to my mind, the bottom line of the Lizette Larkins thing is that this was a psychic prediction that happened in the middle of or at the end of this experience. Because even though this experience is more real than real, it's more true than true. Again, when you come back to time from timelessness, it's just a matter of time, baby. 
before the decay sets in and before the self creeps back up and the ghost of who you were, you know, sort of wants to cling to you and come back. Um, so I think that this was set up as like the undeniable reminder that this happened, uh, was the synchronicity more than synchronicity, the psychic prediction of the learning annex calling me. <laughs> uh, I think that's what its function was. And I don't think that, um, I don't even necessarily know that that ending to this um, was uh, fully part of the experience or was, as Jeff Ritzman said, me coming back to myself and clinging on to something recognizable. Ooh, aliens. Ooh, Mars. You know, ooh, ooh this message. Like, this is me getting in the way of the purity of the experience as I'm coming back into myself or as I'm struggling to live. I think that is possible, but I also think it's possible that do we humans not understand that other planets cannot help us if we continue to block them out and kill ourselves doesn't refer to channeling aliens or blocking out aliens, but the planets themselves. Uh, and the reason I say that is because the one thing that felt qualitatively different in terms of consciousness of this I am experience, I am universe, whatever, was uh, being the sun or being a star. I don't know that it was our sun, but you know what I mean. Like a star. Being a star has an immense aloneness. Stars are sentient. They're conscious. This will be the most new agey thing I say, folks. <laughs> so enjoy. Stars are conscious. Uh, and they have an immense aloneness about them. They are solitary. They're almost gods. They almost are what we think of as gods. Um, except that they don't last forever, but they are also, I don't know if psychic really hits it, but it's close enough. They are interlinked with each other. They all know about each other and they're all working on the same, whatever, the same issues, let's say. And being the sun, the sun is just happy to give light and life to the nearest rock that can handle it. That's what the sun does. So I think, uh, you know, planets, blocking out planets. I mean, suns are alive. Planets are alive. Is there some bigger sense of the universe that we're blocking out? Certainly most of us are not living in our, you know, universal sense of consciousness. Um, I don't know. All of that is probably for another time. That's the story, folks. The thing that I uh, ignored in that for a while, for a long time, in fact, the book that I wrote about the spiritual stuff that's like purely the spiritual stuff with none of the snarky UFO stuff or anything that is called Urgency. And um, you can go buy it. <laughs> but I will, I have an audiobook version that I'll probably. Uh, that's on my website that I'll probably release to the public for free. So if you have no money <laughs> or you, you know, prefer audio, um, you can just wait for that to happen, I suppose. You don't really need to do either, honestly. But I did write about this stuff in there. And the thing that I neglected were the people in the room. The sense of the people in the room. What I figured that was initially was... Um, 
that my consciousness was going haywire in some way. Kind of like, is it Michael Persinger who did the God helmet, the so-called God helmet? You put this thing on and then suddenly start to feel like there are people in the room or sleep paralysis. You know, you have sleep paralysis and it feels like there are people in the room. Um, I was thinking it was something along those lines. Not, not that the whole experience was that, but that that piece of it was that, uh, was shifting into another sense of consciousness. Um, but what I think now, and here's where it becomes hypothetical, I suppose, uh, is that these were uh, the beings that we call sometimes that we call visitors, sometimes that we call alien. This is tough to get into because I want to say I know this for a fact uh, in general, but in specific to my situation, I'm not certain that these were those beings. So it's hard for me to, I don't know where to start with this. Um, maybe I'll start with where this theory came from in the first place, what I'm about to tell you. I mean, what I tried to describe last time and what I am going to describe to you now is essentially that there are beings uh, who are not in our sense of time, who are not in our configuration of dimensions, but who are like conjoined twins with us in other dimensions that we also occupy, but we're blind to. Right? Like, we already know, I mean, the physics-y thing is, like, there are the, you know, few dimensions that we know and love, and then there are also these other dimensions, right? Like string theory. Well, what occupies those other dimensions? We do, <laughs> right? Like, aspects of us are in those other dimensions. It comprises reality. But are there also other beings who are in those dimensions who are more... Uh, brought up in a different set of them to which we are blind. Does this make sense? And so that the, the knowing thyself as the entirety of the multidimensional nature of a person, of a being, of a living being, to know yourself as that, not as hypothetical, not as Eureka discovered it through science, but to actually be the being who lives and sees through all of those dimensions um, does that take a certain wake-up period? I was going to say wake-up call, but does it take a certain wake-up for that? Not technology, but waking up. And are there beings in these other dimensions conjoined with you and I who are awake to that? And so as they're trying to wake us up, it's one waking oneself up, essentially, right? Um, is that what's going on here? Is that why it's so personal? Is that why they care at all? I mean, why would an alien care if we blew ourselves up? Um, but these beings might. And if you just think about that how we see the world is perception. It's all, you know, various organisms perceiving is what creates the world. You know, essentially perception, thought both of these, uh, if you keep taking away different beings through extinctions or through genocides or any of this, 
the world starts to get vaguer and vaguer. It starts to get smaller and smaller. It starts to get colorless, right? And what if they know themselves to be that, uh, the fullness of themselves, and they also know that we, as an appendage, because, uh, as, you know, because we're not fully conscious, we are essentially acting as an appendage to them. Um, if we go, if we go extinct, for instance, a piece of them goes extinct. Um, do they know that and we don't? Does that make sense? So, and I don't know that to be the case. I just think it's, it's a hypothetical that came to me in an interesting way. It came to me, and again, I'm, I, I've got to talk about these books generally. I'm not trying to promote them. But I wrote about this in, originally, in I Am To Tell You This and I Am To Tell You It Is Fiction. And the reason I titled the book that is because, one, I don't know if it's true, but two, um, I have a sneaky suspicion that if it is true, it still has to be kept as fiction. It still, otherwise it becomes a myth. It becomes something that you believe in and start living by, and that's useless. Um, but basically everything that's in that book, which then bleeds over into Aliens, the First and Final Disclosure, which I did try to promote to you in the last episode, um, that came to me all at once. It just popped into my head all at once, like how it works, how multidimensional stuff works, what other lives are, you know, what these beings, how they function in it, how non-dual beings, timeless beings function in time, all of it. And it made sense to me. Uh, so could it have come from my own imagination or from the impersonal imagination? Uh, yeah, it could have. But to me, the point is that aliens aren't true. <laughs> and our normal sense of what it means to have interdimensional visitors isn't true, or time travelers isn't true, and that this in its totality makes more sense uh, to me, and maybe it doesn't to you. So, but at least it gets the conversation moving in a different way to where if this isn't true, maybe one of you will have the eureka moment of the thing that is. But we're not going to know that if we're stagnant. You know what I mean? So to me, the more important thing isn't that it's completely true so much as we start getting the movement going again of thinking outside the box, so to speak. But essentially, what the theory is, is this. That there are beings, again, who are conjoined with us, who need to speak with us to let us know about all of this. And again, they can't just tell us directly because you can't break the shell for the bird to come out or the bird doesn't live. So there is nothing that they can say that will wake us up. In our case, unlike the example of the bird, it just doesn't work anyway. It's not like it will break us. It would break us if they landed and pretended to be aliens and have handshake deals with our government and all that. That would <laughs> that might break us. But just to sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart spiritual talk or something, or a heart-to-heart -heart talk about wholeness or non-duality, um, that doesn't do anything for you. It can't. It has to come from you. You have to find your way out of yourself, right? You have to find your way to the place where the brain itself shuts down the seeker, sees that the seeking, the learning, the evolving, 
is only a furtherance of the self, and you can't take you with you when you go. You've got to get over this fear of annihilation, the unknowable, and uh, that's it. End of story. And when once there's clarity on that, you're gone because you're not clear. You're not clarity. You're ignorance and confusion. <laughs> uh, once you see what free will is, you'll never turn back. Um, so, but here's here's the rub. The rub is that essentially what we call reality is comprised of thought. And let's say that the human mind, at least the human mind, is like a its own reservoir. Its own... Um, I mean, I put it in terms of a pendulum. Like, we swing back and forth on the pendulum between good and, good and evil. Um, but it's just the one pendulum. The things that we call good aren't really good. They're a substitute for the good. And the things that are evil aren't... Um, immutably, permanently, absolute evil. Um, they're just confusions and, and all of that, um, which I know sounds like Buddhism. Um, somebody said, and not a few people have said it, you know, I sound like Buddhism or Zen or whatever, and I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Zen person or whatever. If it sounds like Buddha and I are on the same page, great, I'm in good company. Um, but I think the ism, that which comes after <laughs> the experience or having the experience and then telling people about it is garbage, um, is causes further illusion. And this is the problem is that it's not just an illusion. Like there is the Buddhist saying, I do like the saying of, if you see Buddha on the road to enlightenment, kill him, meaning that it's an illusion. And that's cute. Nah, ha, ha. But really what it's telling you is like, if you expect to see Buddha, you may just very well see Buddha. Like, the universe conjures up Buddha. The mind, the collective human mind, full of all this thought stuff, these thought forms that are sort of parasitic and semi-alive, these archetypes, which then become personages, uh, come up before you as visions and spirits and ghosts and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, that's all within the reservoir of the human mind. And that's all the known. But what we're talking about is the unknown. We want the unknown to be in the realm of the known, which is why we keep answering what this is. It's aliens, it's interdimensional, it's eh. Um, but we have to keep it a mystery. Even if what I just told you about the, the nature of the interdimensionality is true, it still isn't true for you and me. So we have to keep it a hypothetical. You see what I'm saying? Like, even if it's true, to name it, is to define it, is to build it up as sort of a tulpa, <laughs> as a thing that comes to you. Like suddenly, yeah, the phenomenon will change, and now it'll be that. But it's not actually the phenomenon doing that. It's the universe doing that. This is where it's going to get really tricky, and I don't know that I can do this all in one little summation here, which is unfortunate. But I'm going to try. Um, myths are alive, sort of. They have qualities about them that are living, like I, you know, and like I said, archetypes and all that have these sort of qualities about them. Um, but they're not the actual. They're still thought constructs. They're thought forms that have taken on a life of their own. 
through collective agreement. And the universe does this, and you are the universe, because the universe wants to keep you here, and you want to remain here. So the universe will allow, <laughs> the universe, which is highly comprised of time, folks, will allow you to experience the timeless, cast you out and reel you back in. That's how novelty happens in the universe, through that. And then once it takes those novel experiences, through you having had them and talking about them and sharing them and other people building, this is how the universe builds itself up in these other you know, ways. You can call it the underbelly of the universe, the underworld, whatever it is, the archetypal. I mean, all of these sorts of realms um, are both real and unreal. They're real they're real enough. They're real to you and me when we experience them. Uh, but they're not truth. They're not that other reservoir. They're not of the absolute. They're not of timelessness. They're not non-duality, right? They're the known. And even though, you know, just like you and I are the known and, and we have lives of our own and yet we're illusions. <laughs> So it is with these archetypes. And add to that the alien, which is, you know, our latest strain of that. So the universe may send you an alien, folks, may send you a UFO, may send you something like that. If you're highly interested, if you know how to really deeply in the maybe even in the Jungian way of shutting off the, the shallow sense of self for that deep, you know, inner seeker self. You may find that which you seek, and then you mistake that for the real, which is exactly what the universe wants you to do, to keep you here, to keep you not transcending and including the universe. Why would the universe want that? The universe wants to remain relevant, after all, which is the same thing as saying you want to remain relevant, right? Like all of these, you are reflections of each other. The only way to know the difference between the real and the unreal is that the unreal will tell you things or show you things that, yes, keep you going down the rabbit hole and rabbit hole and rabbit hole, chasing and chasing and chasing, but also, uh, especially nowadays, in, in the way that we tend to see ourselves and as future-forward thinkers and all of this, um, do things and say things to further your evolution. Right? So you will hear things, you know, you ask anyone who supposedly is a channeler or has an abduction experience um, that is like a positive experience, let's say, <laughs> uh, or talks to Mother Mary, you know, or any of these sorts of things, the messages are always about you. They're always about furthering you. You're the center of attention. Lucky you. Whereas... I think the real beings of non-duality, if you want to call it, or beings who are outside of the universe looking in, know that not to do that. <laughs> they know we're going to do that with, likely, we're likely to do that with whatever it is that they present because we immediately want an answer. And so when the scary other comes at us, you know, we go, ah, God, we got to answer this. We got to make the unknown known. Uh, and then we can do something about it, or we can embrace it and love it. Um, 
but to cut back as much as possible on the odds of that happening, I think that they don't do messages that are about your own evolution. Um, because they must know what I'm telling you, <laughs> what I know from experience, which is that nothingness needs to be the case. Silence needs to be the case. Clarity needs to be the case. For truth to be the case. You can't be blocking it out with all of this evolution. You can't be adding on to you. You can't be, you know, the light worker or the spirit warrior. Um, if you're fighting evil or you're actively doing good on behalf of, you know, doing something against the negative, you're stuck on the pendulum going back and forth. That's all the illusion. Um, it's a functional illusion. It's one that entire cultures dedicate themselves to, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, but an illusion nonetheless. And that's all well and good, but we're not concerned with that in this talk, right? Like, it's not a judgment against that, like, oh, that's lesser than. It's just simply like, what is the truthiest truth of them all? <laughs> and I think the truthiest truth of them all is that there is the reservoir of the absolute uh, that if it is that we can't touch, we can't speak to it. There's nothing and it, nothing that we can, we have, we're the problem in the way of it flowing through and as us. And so because we're a blockage in the way, it can speak to us. And when it speaks to us, it speaks to us generally through these means, the archetypal means that we're talking about, or whatever it is that we can understand. Uh, and then hope that one or two people get it. <laughs> I mean, that, that's just it. And so this brings me back to the people in the room. Why would there be a sense of people in the room in a non-dual experience? That was always my, my sort of question to myself, is like, that's why it must be like sleep paralysis stuff, or Michael Persinger's God Helmet type stuff. Um, because why would there be people? This is a oneness experience. Why would there be two? Why would there be multiples? Um, because of just that, that, that the oneness and the two-ness, yeah, ultimately everything is one energy, but there is the breakdown of that into various components. And one component is the oneness um, of universal consciousness, but then there's also a oneness of multiversal consciousness. And there are beings in this multiversal consciousness who are, who are us and not us at the same time. We share the same dimensional space, but these dimensions are invisible to us. But we're not invisible to them because they've already woken up, right? So uh, how many of these beings there would be? I don't know. How many of these dimensions have, you know, do they even all have planets the same way we do and all of that? Not for this discussion, I suppose. So just for clarity, what I'm saying about thought and archetypes and all of that, uh, I think these are facts that if I had more time, I would be flushing out. But maybe you'll just have to ponder it on your own to see why that's the case. Or if you're going to argue that it isn't, to know why what you're arguing. Uh, on the other hand, don't take my word for it. You can, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying take my word for it, but 
um, obviously, ultimately, like I said, I could be crazy. I could be lying. Eh. But I'll just tell you, in my own head, this is the fact. And the hypothesis about what, what the UFO phenomena represents as being a part of that fact, being on the other side of thought, um, that is a hypothesis, partly based on my own experience and in thinking about that, and partly because it just came to me all at once and like, when does that, that never happens, except unless it was like handed to me, like, here you go. Um, you get it now. Do what thou wilt. And now I have a hard time not seeing it everywhere. <laughs> everywhere I turn in ufology, um, in people's experiences, uh, in seeing the difference between sort of the puppet alien archetype being used by an invisible hand and uh, the archetypal puppet being used by the universe. And it does seem to me, again, that the difference is very clear. One tells you wake up, the other one tells you evolve. Um, one helps you, one ushers you into waking up, if you can, if you're at that point. Because again, this started with a slit and the energy and the whole thing. That's not something that, unlike the Kundalini energy, that's not something that I can just become silence for a moment and then it rises and or whatever comes alive and does its stuff. Um, someone else activated non-duality in me and there seemed to be multiple people in the room on that occasion of this ultimate I am experience. There wasn't just me. Who else would that be? I don't know. Uh, but I haven't heard any other um, and I probably won't here as a result of this, anything more likely than what I'm describing to you. I don't think because people are going to be like angels, demons. It's like, oh God, can we get over this? Can we please get over this? But it's hard to get over this because those things are there, right? I guess this is my point is like, I'm not denying that you will in your life maybe have, you know, you'll have trickster phenomena, you'll have things that seem demonic, things that seem angelic, you may have visions of these things, and they're real in that they're happening, but they're not real in that they're not going to tell you anything about you that you don't already know. They're just going to lead you to more experiences. They're not going to lead you to silence. Only you can understand this and be that silence or not be that silence, if that makes sense. And if this doesn't jive again with things that you may know through your reading of non-duality or whatever, I don't care. Uh, that's all the book learning. This is the point where book learning stops and we have to like be with ourselves, not because I'm arrogant and I tell you so. If you think I'm a narcissist, great, ignore me. A, a, a kajillion people have told you this. <laughs> I'm just the latest guy who's doing it while, you know, giggling. Um, but the serious people have told you this too. And what have you done with it? What have you become? Defensive? Um, more shell? So we need to keep hearing this over and over and over again until it somehow, some way, through some voice breaks through. Uh, and then we're speaking it. Not because we're trying to sell a product, <laughs> not because we're, you know, 
masters of something that has no mastery to it, um, but because it is, it is deeply our nature. And so, you know, if nothing else, also, let's just take this away from this. The seeing and being the universe through all those different quote-unquote eyes is so fantastical that to hear people say, like, oh, we're, we're so limited in what we can do because of the meat that we're comprised of, our brains can only do so much or whatever, is not true. Like, the brain and the meat and all of that of us, the organism, is part of the joke. <laughs> it's, part of, it's part of the illusion. I mean, essentially what everything is, nothingness is consciousness per se. Consciousness per se, in simply being, has to be different than consciousness per se. It has to be something. It has to be, it's being all things. So all things that can be expressed will be expressed. Uh, or, or are being expressed right now. Um, and in this universe, if there be laws of physics, that means that certain things don't need to be expressed uh, so much in the physical as they can in our imagination, where anything goes. Um, if you'll indulge me this, let me just hit on just two more topics here. I know I'm, I'm outstaying my welcome on this, but um, one thing is hallucinogens, the psychonaut trip and all of that. Um, I did shrooms many years later after that experience, many years later, for Paratopia, Jeff Ritzman and I, who had also never, neither of us had ever done hallucinogens. I never even smoked pot in college. I never even drank. I mean, I've had sips of alcohol, and but like I drank a something, strawberry daiquiri or something when I turned 21, just to the rite of passage, but I, I never drank. I didn't like the taste of alcohol. I never did drugs. I didn't like how people were on them. And I certainly didn't want to block out reality with, what's up, man? Like, that just never appealed to me. Uh, so, and also because I was an experiencer, to be honest with you, crazy enough. And so I didn't want people to be able to say to me, oh, you just did drugs. However, after talking to Dennis McKenna and Graham Hancock uh, on Peritopia and Jeff Ritzman playing a lot of Terrence McKenna to me, we decided, okay, we'll do shrooms. And so I did uh, How You Say the Hero's Dose. This was my first foray into drugs. It was like this much mushrooms. Jeff did not do that much by any stretch. Um, what I will say about it, just briefly, is that I am glad I had this so-called enlightenment experience, or I am experience beforehand, uh, to know what you can't know if you've never had that experience, which is that these are not the same thing. Drugs are not spiritual. Uh, they may help you psychologically. They're not bringing you anywhere except into that toy box of the mind, the universe. Uh, you know, maybe you can talk to like dead relatives or, you know, uh, aliens or something. Like, who knows? But these are all within the universe. They're not truth. They're all part of the evolution, which is why... These are not better people. <laughs> when they come back from the trip, they may feel pretty good, and they're like, but you can still be a douche, right? Like, <laughs> pardon my language. Uh, so, <laughs> but no, but more to the point, like, the actual trip, my actual experience of it, which was like constant stuff happening and completely different with my eyes open than with my eyes closed, different experiences, but both the same in that, 
it's tickle torture versus a good joke. This is the way I describe it. Like uh, the spiritual, the authentic truth stuff uh, is like understanding a good joke versus somebody tickling your armpit with a feather. And drugs are someone tickling your armpit with a feather. In both instances, you're laughing, but one of them is torture, and it's like someone else is doing it, and you can't stop it. And the other one is comes from understanding and from the broadening of your worldview to understand what all the references of a joke are. You see the difference? So it's not the same, but because they're both ticklish, it, it, they can be confused if you've never experienced one but only experienced the other. So that's what I would say about that for anyone who's probably going to jump in and be like, it's just a DMT dump in your head, man. Like we always want to just like, just, I don't know why we do this. We, we just, well, I do know why we want to do this. We want to make everything known. We want everything to be not just answered, but answered by me. So that way I don't have to deal with actually what's being said. I can just say, oh, I know what that is and go on. And I'm saying all of this flippantly. Because this is what we do. Like, we all do this at different points in our lives, right? I mean, we're just goofs. <laughs> that's the bottom line. Good night, everybody. Um, that's one point. I guess the other is that, you know, in, in my little theory here of interdimensionality, the beings who are outside of time are looking at what we consider to be unfolding as our lives is already all, always already the case. As I said, the only thing that's novel comes from outside of time. So the only way out of this matrix is uh, through silence, is to not be the noise of this life, is to not be the psychological I construct who takes from the past modifies it and brings it forward into the future and calls that new. It's just the past with some touch-ups. It's not new. It's the known over and over and over again. Um, which is why all the human stories are the same stories over and over and over again, just with better special effects. But if you're a being looking at that living picture and let's say, uh, How's this going to look in the camera? Okay, the left of the picture uh, going from left to right. We see that as our lives in an arrow. Um, or we see um, history as an arrow. Or maybe we see it as cyclical but still kind of moving like a spiral. They see all of that hap is perpetually happening at once like a picture. It's a moving picture. And so they can inject themselves, whether there's past lives or not, whether there's you, I mean, you experiencing a past life is just simply you experiencing another detail on the picture that is you, right? So they can look at that and they can inject themselves anywhere they need to, to try to wake you up. And then once you're up, you're up, you're out of the picture. And then you too can see the picture and go, hmm, the ability to leave the picture, <laughs> to leave time, to be, be timeless, is your one true free will act. That's it. Everything else, all of this good, bad decision-making stuff is part of the illusion, is the lie. And it's you. 
you are that. And so it's tempting to remain that. It's tempting to stay with that. And so if you die, uh, you still are there. You're in the, okay, great. You're in the underbelly of the universe. You're experiencing that. You're experiencing being whatever that is, a spirit roaming the earth, an ancestor, someone who goes to heaven, whatever it is you're going to experience, um, whatever other thought construct you have moved your thought construct into, right? Now detached, now you, you know, the great wake up, I suppose, is that you realize you're detached from the body. But you're still, you're still known, knowable, and of the universe. And it ain't enough. It's different, <laughs> but it ain't enough. Because ultimately, from the pullback perspective, you're still there. The underbelly of the universe is here, and uh, the universe is here, and your past life is here, and your current life and your future life are all one picture. And the only way out of the picture is nothingness, is silence, which is another word of, uh, another way of saying truth, which is another way of saying consciousness per se, that which is deeply you not just as in theory, but as your self-awareness. This doesn't take evolution. This doesn't take time. This takes just an immediate awakening to that which transcends and includes everything. That being, that spirit riding on the wind, whatever that is, um, it's not enough to say that we are all already that because we're all already one. We're one energy expressing as all these things. Great. But the thing that you need to do, should you choose to accept it, is be the self-awareness of that. You are already that. The body is already that. Time is already transcended and included within the timeless. Duality is transcended and included within non-duality. But the thing that you're actually blocking out is the self-awareness. Is you as that, in your being, as your being. So that time and timelessness... Merge is one. The body is of time. The organism is moving through time. Timelessness is the sentience moving the vessel. And this is where I've hit a wall because it is impossible to talk about all this stuff in one sitting and have any sort of real focus. Uh, it, it's like, bleh, it's like Medusa's tentacles all going out in all these directions and you're kind of fascinated looking at her, but slowly you're turning into stone. <laughs> because it's a lot. It's heavy. <laughs> and, uh, you know. <laughs> uh, so maybe for my own peace of mind, just in saying this in the way that I feel it needs to be said, um, I will do a series. Whether that takes place in an unknown country, I don't know. But let me know if you'd be interested. It would be free. Part of me is tempted to try to do it through Dreamland because it's such a large audience. But the other part of me is like, well, why don't you just make people write a five-paragraph essay of why they want to do this <laughs> and then pick amongst them like a college might because that way you don't have to deal with, you know, trolls and all of that to, to like get to the actual questions that people might have. Because... Um, who wants to wade through that? But the problem is, so many of you have responded positively to this that I think that there are of the, you know, tens of thousands of Dreamland listeners, uh, probably tens of thousands of people who do want to hear this. So 
even if I have to hear from a hundred trolls and all capping me over and over and over again and post after post, uh, maybe it is worth doing this way. I don't know, but you tell me. Also tell me if you like this microphone better than the other microphone. Um, I think I used the, my normal microphone in the last one and this is a different one. So let me know what you think, um, if you care, uh, because this one is much easier to deal with. I think that's it for now. I just, um, I don't know, food for thought, I suppose. Um, but contemplate pretty please on, with sugar on top how this is all important, because if anything I'm telling you here is true, then you should at least be getting the sense that and we're not exactly the pinnacle of human nature. We just sort of said we are. And it's not through evolution that we're going to become the pinnacle. It's not through time. It's actually through puncturing time. It's actually through timelessness uh, that we're going to mutate, as it were, transcend and include uh, what we are now. Transcend meaning you know, we will be broader and more whole and, and, but we will include the parts of course, of who we are right now that are healthy, but we will get rid of the, the disease portion of the program. I mean, I suppose there, there may always be some self to interact with here. Um, but does it need to be un, you know, motivated by unconscious psychological baggage? Or can it be motivated by truth? Um, can it actually be truth? Spoiler alert, it can and it must. And if we're ever going to talk about in any honest way what the enigmatic other is, whether you want to call it alien or you know, I hope you don't anymore, but if we're ever going to talk about that, or ghosts, or Bigfoot for that matter, or any of it, we have to know who and what we are first. And then maybe some of those questions become clear all on their own, just as we've become clear through the magic of not polluting ourselves with our own knowledge. All right. I'll see you when next I see you. And you'll probably hate me again because of the guest. <laughs> Till then, surprise. Boo! And you thought we were done. Well, we are done, but subscribers are going to get an extra hour of Q&A stuff that fleshes this out, goes even deeper. So I just wanted you to be aware of that. <laughs> it's a reason, even though you've listened to this whole show, to go subscribe, because you're going to get like around another hour of this, like this area here, the mouth area, uh, doing, you know, the babble dabble but in a more concise and direct way, not uh, so loosey-goosey. So, uh, your choice. I just wanted you to be aware. The conversation continues for subscribers as I answer some of their questions from a previous episode. All right. Hope to see you on unknowncountry.com. Aloha, gang. It's Jeremy still, although clearly a different day, or at least a costume change. No, it's a different day. Um, I wanted to, um, do some listener feedback. In fact, I forgot to start with something that I wanted to start with from a previous episode from, uh, an interview I did with Michael Masters in April. 
Um, so I'm going to start there, and um, if I have not completely outstayed my welcome, uh, I'll keep this on the uh, on this uh, this week's program. If not, I'll make it a completely separate video. If it gets a little too long in the tooth, we'll do that. It's already long in the tooth because I'm explaining to you my process, which is foolish. But anyway, let's just do a little Q and A, shall we? Um, and see if I can't be more concise than the last rambly hour and a half. So in this um, Michael Masters interview from, from last April, um, in the comments section on Unknown Country, Sunbow says, um, I think the block universe theory is false. A good thought experiment or science fiction exploration of an idea of a universe with no free will. I also think it is being injected into the common person's awareness because if everything is predestined, then those who are starting wars for profit or killing people have an excuse. I have seen ordinary people using this excuse on the internet for their own, uh, for their nasty behaviors. That said, I think anomalous equipment functioning, or maybe he means malfunctioning, you tell me if he meant malfunctioning, but anomalous equipment functioning is a big sign that someone is on to a very interesting aspect of reality. Every anomaly should be rigorously explored. A lot of data is required before a thought experiment, like the Block Universe, can be considered a theory or model of reality. There are many more questions than answers. Be wary of answers. And you know something, Sunbow? I agree with you. Um, so Michael Masters talked about the Block universe theory, and I'm not completely familiar with it. I mean, I had never really looked it up, but it sounds like from what he was saying, um, it, it sounds like, at least partially, what I've been talking about in terms of non-duality, in terms of the pulled back perspective where everything is happening is right now. So even though we experience past, present, and future, there's a perspective from which all of this exists right now. Therefore, um, there's no free will. And um, so you're saying that there are some people who use that as an excuse to see like, see, I don't have free will. Ugh. But that two things. One is what I'm talking about in terms of that non-duality is not theory. It is the, the case. It is a quote unquote fact. It is, um, but it is, if it's not true for you, if you have not experienced it, then it's not true for you, and so it might as well be a theory. It's got as much meaning as a theory, in other words, because it's something to be, be lived as through the point of view of, not be theorized from this point of view, if that makes sense. Um, but let's talk about free will for a sec here. Free will is pretty costly, <laughs> actually, in the way that we mean it. Um, hmm. let me think what needs to be said here about free will. The, uh, that which we call free will is not free will. We think that because we have the ability to make choices that we have free will, right? Except that we make these choices in confusion. The only reason that you choose between two things is because you're confused as to what to do next. And so do you do A, B, C, D? Um, but when you are in a state of clarity, truth acts. There is only action. There's not reaction. And so there's no confusion. There's clear in clarity. So 
you know, maybe ironically or paradoxically, we can see it this way, that, you know, we live in relativity, but there is the absolute. Truth is the absolute. So free will actually comes from the absolute, <laughs> not from the relative. Does that make sense? Like, if you think about uh, how your contents of consciousness are you, the thing that you say is mine, your contents of consciousness, the contents of consciousness are the consciousness itself. And when you take away those contents through doing psychological work and or meditation, you know, however one comes to clear that up, you become clearer and clearer. There becomes less and less obstacles, less and less you, and that consciousness then is revolutionary. It's completely different when it is emptied of the contents. So, with that, you know, emptied of you, when there is just pure consciousness, and that pure consciousness isn't unsure, isn't going to do anything wrong, right? Like, it knows. <laughs> uh, and so I've been calling this sort of the, the sentience or the self-awareness of truth. You know, ordinarily, we either live by truths, truisms, things that we've heard or been told or been taught um, that resonate with us, and we go, okay, that's how I'm going to be. Or we have insights where truth comes to us as if from an outside source, and we go, aha, eureka. In those moments of no thought, um, of rest, of the brain resting, you know, truth can come through and be an insight like that. But then there's also the self-awareness, the first person experiencing, true thing, if you will, <laughs> uh, of uh, truth self-aware being the case in the vessel. And when that is the case, there is what is called often choiceless action, right action, not reaction for sure. And, um, but... Uh, if you're not experiencing that first-person point of view of that, and it's just theoretical, it's just this guy babbling at you or something you've read, then sure, you can, you can set up whatever hypothetical about that you want, and you're still wrong, you know, as these people who are saying like, oh, well, there's no such thing as free will, therefore, well, you do have a free will choice, and the free will choice is to see all of this, to understand yourself so clearly that all of you dissolves. I mean, again, let's fractally, it's the same thing as like psychotherapy in a sense, right? Like in psychotherapy, you're trying to understand yourself so that you are not, can, at least in part, you know, of course, you want to understand those around you who abused you and whatever, but in part, you understand your reactions to things. Like, why are you the way you are? And once you gain clarity about yourself, you know, piece by piece, little by little, you are relaxed. You're more relaxed. You're less neurotic. You're less crazy, essentially. And... Um, so somebody who does not go to therapy, can they say, well, it's not my fault that I kill people because my parents? Well, no, you have, you don't need to be robotically controlled by uh, hating your mom and dad or how they treated each other or whatever. Or even if it's partly biological, you know, the nature and nurture thing, um, you don't need to be controlled by that either. That's an excuse. You have, you have options. 
And those options involve freeing yourself up psychologically so that you can see clearly, so that you don't want to do, you don't have a compulsion to do, you know, bad things, evil things, in quotes. Um, so just take that fact. I don't think that's disputable, right? And now apply it to the whole self, not just piece by piece, not just where you feel better and you get your parents, but when the whole self dissolves and what you're left with is the oneness of interconnecting with it all because we're all in this together or however that gets expressed in that moment for you. Well, now it's no longer theoretical. And now you have a perspective that that other person doesn't have and you have compassion for them because you just were them and you understand them. But you can't even say that to them because you'll just be taken as condescending or descending, right? So either you're the jerk, you're the arrogant jerk, how dare you tell me that I'm childish, that I'm whatever, um, or, oh my God, you must be a holy person, you know? You're either condescending or you're descending. This is the way we generally take anyone who says such things. So I guess just to sum up here, Here's what I wrote. Um, so what we call free will comes from confusion. When there is clarity, there is no choice, just direct action. Understanding this may bear some universal fruit in terms of breaking through the self to universal consciousness, which many people have throughout all time. Now, is there beyond that even an understanding which brings us to a multidimensional stage in which even the universe itself is completely seen? So not just you completely seen, your own personal self, so completely seen that you're seen through, and then you're in the oneness. Um, but is there an, more even beyond that? Um, where you're experiencing all of time and space in one gulp, not a teaching, just an understanding. Or perhaps beings, once they see that you're ready, open you up to that. If there isn't, then you're limited to what you've got. The unhealthy brain self, the healthy heart self, universal oneness, and truth wafting through all of that as a perfume. If you're stuck in the self, you can justify your actions however you like. Life is only ever theoretical anyway. You're picking disingenuous answers like picking dress pants and jeans. Six-year-olds may debate whose parent is the strongest and smartest and bestest in the whole world. Let them. That's what kids do. They'll be adults one day, choicelessly, unless they're killed in an accident or because actual adults have destroyed Earth by living what they call loving lives and using what they laud as free will. Um, that's a little bit of snark at the end. Good old Jer with his snark, but it's also true. Uh, and it's funny because as I wrote that, I was thinking about like, I remember getting into arguments with my sister about our, our parents, like, I love mom more, I love dad more, and like kids at school where you're like, my father can beat up your father, or my mother is smarter than your mother, or you know, whatever it is, there's always this, uh, mine is better than yours argument, and as a parent, you watch this, and you know, you can um, try to teach them, no, one is not better than the other, no, stop fighting, you know, you can do all of that, you can guide them that way, but the thing you can't really do because they're little kids and they won't understand is tell them, you know, the root of your argument is the word mine, 
And that's a problem, kids. <laughs> uh, so you got to let them work it out. You can give them like little clues and stuff, but essentially it doesn't matter. One day they're going to be adults and figure it out. Um, and I would say that that's what people who are like making stupid arguments like that online are doing. And even in, a, uh, well, in a very real and same sense, people who are hypothesizing about oneness or about nowness. Um, and here's where a lot of you are, are going to hate me probably, but, you know, I get asked now and then to interview, what is his name? Uh, Campbell. Um, yeah, I can't remember his first name, but the author of uh, My Big Toe, My Big Theory of Everything, his last name's Campbell. And he is, I believe, a physicist, and so it's all about, like, how reality is a virtual reality and blah, blah, blah. And it's so naive and childish that I'm, I'm almost tempted to do like a reaction video series of spiritual stuff on YouTube and start with him just because so many people are like, Hey, you've got to interview this guy. You've got to, have you ever heard of this? Have you ever, is it Thomas Campbell? Yeah, I wish I remembered. Um, it's too bad. I can't just look it up and edit this later, huh? Ting. Anyway, uh, theories like that, where it doesn't come from actual experiencing, but is just like, oh, this makes logical, rational sense, and I'm going to extrapolate from this theory and, you know, pretend that it's not a theory and forget that it is a theory and, um, you know, tell you about life in the universe and everything off of it is just childish and silly. Um, which is why I hope I made it clear in, in this, and I will continue to try to make it as clear as possible going forward every time. Like, what I'm talking about is from personal experience and understanding and what is a theory. So when I talk about Kundalini in general, and when I talk about what Kundalini is not, that is all true. That's, I know that for a fact. When I start talking about what Kundalini is, uh, in terms of how it specifically breaks down, um, which I didn't do on either of these shows, but when I do that, I do that in my books, that's uh, a theory. And when I talk about this multiversal, you know, beings who are conjoined with us, waking us up, it's a theory. When I talk about reincarnation and all of that within it, it's a theory. But all of those theories are extrapolations from personal experience and then, um, and then seeing what makes sense, even in terms of like, Things that Jiddu Krishnamurti, like I will find videos where Jiddu Krishnamurti talks about this, and I'm going, oh, wow. Wow, he was talking about this back then. It's just nobody really, he didn't, he didn't advertise it. Let's put it that way. He very rarely talked about spiritual masters and psychic powers and kundalini and stuff, but there are a couple of videos on it, and it's, we're saying the same things. And I'm like, okay, well, this can't be a coincidence. And you know, the only argument against that would be like, well, obviously, Jerry, you came to this through Krishnamurti, so you're going to adopt his, his stuff as your illusion, except that he never said any of this stuff in the books that I read or whatever. He always said, just do this and find out, figure it out for yourself, take the journey yourself. He never said what happens next. Um, and it's only now, thanks to YouTube, that can uh, I can find these videos and go, oh, he didn't say what happens. He still doesn't say what happens next, but he talks about these in very specific ways that I don't see anyone else talking about, that I'm also talking about. And 
I didn't have that as knowledge base when I woke up thanks to understanding what he was originally saying. So uh, that's not proof that my theories are correct. It's just to me, it's like a little nudge, like, okay, this is in the right direction. So while it's, it's interesting and something that I am sort of pursuing, I guess, thinking about all of this paranormal and spiritual stuff in terms of non-duality and what that would look like, I also need to be very careful not to pat it out and start live-action role-playing, you know, start world-building a fantasy and then going, ah, this is reality. And I feel like that's what my big toe actually is doing because there are so many videos and he's got books and stuff where he treats this like it's the truth. And there are people who argue against him and he's just constantly arguing the point instead of seeing what they're saying um, because it's not theoretical for him. He really does believe that, I think, he really does believe that this is how life is. We're in a virtual reality of some sort. And, you know, it's again, it's, it's mixing, what that is, is mixing up the metaphor for the real. So metaphorically, we're always talking to ourselves through even our inventions. So we've invented virtual reality. And instead of seeing what the actual uh, implications are of that, of what we're telling ourselves by building that, we go, oh, wait a minute, maybe we're in one. Maybe, maybe aliens did this or something. You know what I mean? Like, not, I don't think he's saying aliens necessarily. I don't know. But um, yeah, that's what we do. Uh, so anyway, I hope that sort of answers it. In any event, it, it, it's basically like even the, the oneness thing, if you think about you as an individual are, are one, you're one person. And then you can have an experience where you see through that one person, that, that person so deeply that the person dissolves. And then you're in the oneness of the universe, the interconnecting nature of all, the universal oneness. And then that person can dissolve. And then you're in, whoa bigger oneness, like the most transcendent oneness of all, or whatever it is. You know what I mean? But, and, and though those be true, if they're not true for you, because you haven't actually experienced them, they're completely meaningless. And you're still living this little bubble where all that stuff is an ideal, or something to hypothesize about, something to build on in your imagination. And ultimately what you're doing, and when I say you, I mean these people you're talking about. I'm, I don't know you, Sunbow. I'm saying you in general. Uh, what you're doing is trying to keep all of this in thought because the self is thought. So just like you don't want to, you know, just like you want to take you with you when you go, you don't really want to die, you know, to uh, become selflessness while the body remains alive. You want to bring that to you. That's why we want evolution. We want growth and self-involvement. We don't want annihilation. We don't want the dissipation of self for the real to be the case. We want to be that real as we are. And so we want to build ourselves up. And even in that, we're so narcissistic as a culture now that we've even in that decided to forego the part where we learn anything anymore and go straight to, I'm a master of it. You know, I took a weekend retreat and I'm a shaman. <laughs> So that's where we are. We're deep in our delusion. And eh, what are you going to do? That's what we do. That's what we do until we make the one free will choice to see it all as it actually is. And in that moment, the choice becomes choiceless because we're not there to make it. We've dissolved.
and truth be the case. And from there, true free will becomes you. Okay, uh, Sherbet UFO says, Jeremy, after watching the entire video, I find myself thoroughly disappointed that I didn't get to see your water-stained t-shirt. Ah, well, maybe next time. Sherbet UFO, you're in luck. Not right this moment, but there will always be a next time. There's no end to me staining my shirt. <laughs> I'm a stain. <laughs> he goes on to say, uh, you mentioned that us not waking up is them not waking up. The word midwives comes to mind. Yes, which is a word that I've used actually for this. Um, which actually I stole from Whitley. Um, I can't remember if it was the master of the key, but someone in his life from the enigmatic other talked about this being these beings midwiving us, birthing us into the universe. And for the longest time, I thought that that had to be true and that that's what we would become. We would They're waking us up to become midwives to other planets in the same way that they are, and that that's consciousness waking, one waking oneself up. And um, now I'm just fudging the numbers. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm just uh, sort of keeping the term, but not using it that way, using it into multidimensional blah. Um, because I don't think, just as I don't think that Earth will allow us to leave and go to Mars or wherever as the diseased self, taking with us our conquering colonialist consumerist mentality. I don't think that's going to be allowed to happen. In fact, you're seeing it now. Um, I also know from experience that when you are living in balance, when you are health, uh, you have no want. You have no want for anything. And I'll just, I'll give you an example. So when I ha had my first wake up call where I was sitting on the couch reading Judo Krishnamurti and I got that I'm the guy still not getting it. Like I'm the guy who gets it and that's me being in the way of actually getting it. Um, after that, and then the, you know, the Kundalini rises and all this stuff, but essentially who I became in this lack of, complete lack of self. Uh, and I'm trying to remember if I became that before as I was doing the positive negation stuff of myself. I don't remember. But somewhere in there, I lost my desire for a future, for future building. Like, I wanted to really work in TV. I was writing promos for Nickelodeon, and I wanted to go make movies, and I wanted to work in TV and movies and be a filmmaker, essentially, a writer and a director, all that. And I just completely lost my taste for it. I completely lost my taste for music, Dance, art, improv, all of it. And it wasn't that it, I didn't like it. It just had no hold on me. I didn't like it or not, or, or I didn't like it or not like it. It just is there like anything else. And I think that that is like all of this stuff that we consider to be entertaining or the arts or self-expression, like if there's no self to self-express because you're now in a state of truth, like, <laughs> who cares, right? It doesn't have that hold on you anymore. It's only, you know. Uh, so I think that also translates to leaving Earth and going off and like all this stuff that we want to do to go and, you know, 
see the new, discover, all of that stuff, the, the impulse to do that slows off you and you don't want to do it anymore because you're living in balance, you're living naturally. Why would you build a giant pollution device to go pollute other places just so that your eyeballs can touch down on another planet and you can be the one to name it after yourself or whatever? Like, that just, that wouldn't, that doesn't even strike your fancy anymore. Um... So I don't think that we're being midwived into the universe that way. I think we're being told to wake up. Simple. And so simple we don't do it. Anyway, you say, okay, so you mentioned uh, the word midwives. Reminds me, Jeremy, uh, have you ever read Childhood's End yet? Uh, no, I have not read Child. I think I saw the movie. There might be a movie version I saw, but I've never read it. I still think in our case, the Earth may be the midwife on a far deeper level than we can fathom. Um, maybe. Talking about the intelligence in us being one, I think we can safely throw a conscious Earth into that melting pot. I think you're right. When I had the big I am experience, and I settled on a big red planet and heard, do we humans not understand that other planets cannot help us if we continue to block them out and kill ourselves? Like... Uh, how I had always thought about it was like, it sounds like channeling and all that. I said this during the episode. So Mama Earth is, uh, is alive. And could it be that the actual planets themselves are what's talking to us that we block out? Because there is this larger galactic, solar, universal, whatever, physical, uh, I'm talking, ecology of stuff going on. And so one of the things I didn't talk about in this episode that I wrote in urgency and beyond is about the aspect of being the sun. When I said that I was a star, just happy to give life to the nearest rock that can take it. Um, the thing that I didn't talk about in this episode is that when I was being the star, uh, you know, there's this feeling of immense ancientness to the star, to all stars, I suppose. But I had the feeling that this was going to be me in another life, in a future life. Like I was going to be reincarnated. And I have no belief in reincarnation. But at that moment, it felt as though I knew that I was going to, if I didn't screw things up, be that star in another life. And when I think about it later, <laughs> I think to myself, hmm, that sounds good, except that I just experienced it. So how is it possible that I'm experiencing a future life in this, in this moment of I amness? Um, how am I experiencing what I'm going to be? Well, getting back to the sunbow conundrum of, of the block universe, it's because everything is happening right now. So I am exp I, that future life, whether I know it or not. Right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm blocked off from that. I'm not experiencing that. And so if I remain blocked off from it, then perhaps I do become or experience it piecemeal. I experience that life piecemeal later, unless I wake up to the all and then I'm it now. And then I know it as I knew it in the experience. I, I am that and I am me and I am all this other crap. The other thing is, um, knowing that as a sun, your, your light is giving life to the nearest rock that can handle it, that can take it. Um, I mean, 
that has unfolded for me in a way that is not, I can't give you evidence for other than my word, which again is meaningless, except to just know that I believe this, that sun is communicating with earth, uh, that these sunspots that we see that we're like, oh, we must protect satellites from the sunspot cycle, or someday we're going to lose all of our electricity or whatever it is. Like that is not something to be blocked out. I mean, from satellites, sure. But uh, that these sunbursts, sunlight is communication. Information is being expressed. And we know this from the basic fact that, well, gee, at least all life is being foisted upon Earth through this light. We know that, right, from just basic science. So is it really so crazy to say, like, there's actually a constant communication going, that the universe is, you know, the suns are all aware of each other, you know, presumably many, if not all, have planets that they're giving life to. Like, there's a big life project going on within uh, the universe itself at large through um, other types of beings that are sentient that we consider to be objects because the Bible told us or whatever, you know, like, but they're alive, they're living. And so, yeah, I think it could even be that we're blocking out literally other planets and we want that to mean other aliens, you know, channeled messages or something along those lines. But what if it's literally the planets themselves that cannot communicate with us because we're blocking them out? Blocking them out how? Well, one way would be because we're not in our interconnecting nature. And so we don't even understand that they're alive other than to say it in a hypothetical way, but not be in communion with them uh, or even with our own where we are right now, our own mama. <laughs> um, I mean, we pay lip service to it all the time, but do we really live that way? Uh, maybe we want to, but we still don't. Many, many, many of us. So that's one way we could be blocking them out. There could be a communication waiting to happen if we were not here to block it out with our own blah, blah, blah. Kind of like what I'm doing right now. Um, also, let me just throw this little tidbit out there that I found kind of interesting. Um, I got a letter recently, or an email recently, from someone who just found the Paratopia show with my old broadcast partner, Jeff. So he's telling me, like, hey, this is an amazing show. Thank you for re-releasing this. And uh, I want to tell you my own story. You're going to think this is nuts, but... Dot, dot, dot. And that's always a sign to me that what I'm about to hear is the exact opposite of nuts. Um, and what he basically says is, you know, he was out camping somewhere at some point and like lights came up from the earth, out of the earth, like manifested from the earth, sort of plasmas or whatever, and then sort of shapeshifted into UFOs and flew off. That's the basic gist of it. But it like always, it stayed with him his whole life having seen that, that maybe these are communications from earth. And in fact, spoiler alert for anyone who didn't see Paratopia, it's basically a journey of Jeff and I as experiencers going through and interviewing people, yes, but it's such a journey. And by the end of it, the spoiler part is Jeff uh, comes to the conclusion, at least back then, that where his thinking on all of this is, is that it is in fact earth uh, communicating with us. 
at least that that's a huge factor in it. So I think all of this is great to explore for sure. Um, and maybe we'll do that again at some other point because it gets, well, it gets cloudy <laughs> as Earth is prone to do. Sherbet UFO goes on and says, finally, how is it possible to permanently lose oneself and still function as a human within our constructed society? Is there still a sense of self remaining after coming back from dissolving the ego? So what I would say is, so far, I have uh, died the ego death and resurrected as Jer 2.0, now featuring Kundalini. Um, and I think after the onenessy experience, there was when I jumped out of bed and started pacing around after the, the big I am the universe thing, um, there was an inherent knowing that I have a choice to be that or come back and be this guy and write about it and talk about it and communicate it. And I decided to do that. So whether that decision is real, I've always sort of hedged because um, it could be that once you're back in duality, once you're back in a self, you think you have a choice, right? It comes back to thought. Now you're like, oh, I've got free will. I've got a choice. Do I? Or is that just like a mechanical reflexive reaction to being back in time? I don't know. But all I can tell you is it felt like and feels like I had a legit choice and have a legit choice to live that. Or else why the hell am I being shown this? <laughs> Or go on and, you know, uh, try to articulate it in my own little way here. And, you know, because how can one wake oneself up if one knows oneself to be every other one and then every other one isn't waking up? Then is one really waking up? How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck took well? Uh, so, I am here. <laughs> how do you live and function as a human? Within our constructed society, well, that is simple, actually. You are in society, but you're not of society. So that's it. You're in it, you're not of it. So it doesn't affect you. It's the kind of question that when you're, from your point of view, it makes sense to ask. And from my point of view, it's not even a question anymore, right? There's just this compassion that I can easily forget about because I get angry because I still have these ghosts of self trying to attach back to me. Like, Hey, Jerry, remember when you used to think this way? No, go away. I don't think that way anymore. I know. I don't think that like, I can't possibly think that way anymore. So why are you still floating around? Um, you become more schizophrenic, not less. In, in oneness. Um, and then is there still a sense of self remaining? Sure. After coming back from dissolving the ego, I guess my question is, does there have to be? in the same way. Like, do I have to be JER 2.0 or is there a, instead of visiting it as a state of mind, is there the stage upon which we live where I, the I am perpetually truth flowing, where there is timelessness and non-duality flowing through time and this organism, period. I, I think that that's where we need to be. Um, but we at least need to be this screwed up <laughs> to ask that question. Yeah. Don't want to jump the gun, I guess. Um, Ellen asks or says, 
I was a bit confused by Jeremy's comments about ducks, as if they are somehow inept at being themselves or not very well designed. Ducks, at least wild ones, have been doing quite well in a lot of parts of the world for a very long time. They'll continue to do so unless we manage to destroy too many of the wetlands they depend on. Spoiler alert there, Ellen. We are. Um, their feet are perfectly adapted to swimming, and they actually fly quite well. Why insult ducks? I insult ducks with love, Ellen, with love. It's a Massachusetts thing. That's what we did in Massachusetts. We had two things come from the East Coast. Uh, one is uh, cynicism, and two, very specifically Massachusetts, insulting everyone lovingly. <laughs> uh, and when you leave Massachusetts and see that other people don't do that, it's a culture shock, believe me. No, but so my wife and I have duck children. We have seven ducks. We had eight, one passed away. So we have seven duck children, and you are correct. Ducks are obviously perfect unto themselves in those environments you're talking about. We live on a volcano, <laughs> and I have little duck pools for them to swim in. But essentially, they ain't on Golden Pond here, right? So they do flop around in big floppy clown feet, trying to like navigate up and down a volcano and through vine that I then have to go rescue them from and all of this. So they're not perfect for this environment, unfortunately. But that said, they're still better at running up and down a volcano than I'll ever be. And I don't understand how ducks and chickens... Have you looked at their legs? They're not exactly the most muscular little creatures on... Like, what are they even made of, those little legs? I don't know. But for some reason, they can run up and down a mountain, and I tucker out after just walking one way, right? Like, <laughs> so, trust me, when I make fun of ducks, it's with complete jealousy that they're better than me. And I'll give you another way that they're better. Like, yeah, my point is, they have these giant clown shoe feet. Huh, huh, huh. And they waddle around. They don't have hands. They don't have arms. They don't have little fingers. They don't have, like, even pecky beaks like chickens. They've got rounded bills. They don't have teeth. They have, like, no defense mechanism. And yet, they walk around with such joy as their baseline. When something threatening is, like, in the air, yeah, sure, they freeze and they, they cower and they run and they honk and we come rescue them or whatever. But their baseline is joy. I can't imagine my baseline in that situation being anything other than abject terror. Like, I would all the time be like, help. But that's just me, I guess. Uh, so, no, I'm actually, I actually think in a lot of ways ducks are smarter than I'll ever be. I mean, they certainly, without parents, came right out of the egg and right into this living situation, mapped out a territory and knew exactly how to live, how to make nests, all of it. They have inherent knowledge. Kundalini? <laughs> I don't know, but they have inherent knowledge. And... Um, are so good at being ducks that they're, again, their baseline is joy, which, no, I, I love, I love all creatures, Ellen, but especially these ducks. Um, so if I make fun of you, it's because I love you. It's a Massachusetts thing. Dilly Dally says, I was tempted to push stop a quarter way into your offering, Jeremy, and I get that a lot, because you were saying everything I didn't want to hear. And I get that a lot. So far, I'm on the same page with you, Dilly Dally. <laughs> but I thought it only fair to give you a chance, as I've heard you speak before, uh, some brilliant insights. Thank you. I didn't like to hear that aliens aren't real or that we, upon death of this body, face annihilation, but I persevered until I dimly comprehended some of what I think you're trying to convey. 
I'll give you another chance to help me understand the totality of your current understanding. Um, so I hope it's clear after this episode that I'm not talking about uh, annihilation of uh, upon death of the body. I'm talking about our fear of annihilation isn't necessarily connected to death of the body. Um, I mean, it is, and it, it, it's connected to it. Let's say that. It's connected to it, but it really is the annihilation of self that's the problem. And we know this because having interviewed people or even just talked to people who've had near-death experiences where they're shown, look, you go on, they, they experience not just shown, they're immersed in this virtual reality afterlife, you know, where they're like being waved in or whatever it is. Um, so they lose their fear of death because unless they go to hell, right? But let's just stick with the heavens. They lose their fear of death. But they're still, when I talk to them, will admit, if I explain it the right way, that they have a fear of annihilation. Uh, so the fear of death is no longer there because you see you go on. But what happens if you're zapped out of existence? And the reason you know that such a person still has that fear is because they're still a, a self. They come back as themselves. And in fact, now they're self-reinforced and they go on feeling a certain way about life and death that feels better and is sort of healthier in some sense. Nevertheless, they're still self-protective of their idea of how the world works, of themselves in it, all of that, just like anyone else. So that fear of annihilation is cuts deeper than just even physical death. Um, I didn't really get into the whole life and death thing in this, and I'm sorry about that, but it just, I feel like it just sucks because I, it's not enough time. And I, you know, I know like any of these one sub, sub, single subjects could be extrapolated out. So I have to say something about it and talk about an underworld and, uh, but I don't want to, um, I don't want to, uh, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't want to say too much because I want to stay on track, but I feel like saying too little as I did in this episode is maybe even more confusing. Because then it's like, oh, wait, you just mentioned something and then went to another. Like, that seems pretty big to have mentioned and gone on without explaining it. But if I explain it, we'll be here for hours. Anyway, I, I, I hope what I said is clear enough. If it's not, then maybe I'll say more later. How about that? I do want to go back before I end this and just, I, I completely missed this. Sunbow had said, um, I think anomalous equipment functioning is a big sign that someone is on to a very interesting aspect of reality. Um, and I'm sorry, I forgot to address that just now. Uh, I just wanted to say this about that. So um, I think that when, if, if this is what you're talking about, the malfunctioning of equipment in the room, you know, I think that is the result of, uh, let's switch to the Jungian or pseudo Jungian terms. You know, he talks about the self of the shallows and the self of the depths or the self of time and the self of the depths or whatever words he used. But I think that's kind of true in our schizophrenic way of being here, which is that we've got this self of the surface where I'm talking to you and eh, and then if you're silent and you, you can go within yourself and you can, you know, have fun with all the unconscious crap, <laughs> right? All these realms and stuff. And um, I think that 
when the things in the room go haywire, we you know, and someone says, "Oh, trickster" or whatever, that that is the result of friction when the self of the shallows cannot become the self of the depths to access the actual depths because you're busy talking about it. So in other words, there is no uh, group discussion that can be had that can bring you past a certain point because it's an individual journey where you have to go within yourself. You have to become take off the glasses and become Superman or Superwoman and go into, the, into yourself and you can't do that in a conversation. And when you try, it gets to a certain point and everybody feels it and the room takes on a thickness and suddenly everything goes haywire. And as an example, there is a Paratopia episode with Colin Andrews, the crop circle investigator, where Colin and Jeff and I are having this really deep discussion about crop circles. And it, like, it is palpable. We're all in different locations, but we can all feel it. And, we're, and where Colin is... He said all of his computer banks shut down one after the other. All of his computers, one after the other, shut down. And I think that's what that is. Like we go, ooh, that, isn't that amazing? But when you think about it, it's like we're having, we're three, we're three people who, and I don't know if this plays a role or not, but we are able to sort of obsessively focus really well in our own ways. And we're obsessively focusing together and we're going to a place that is you know, deeper and feels more real and alive than just like, oh, crop circles are hoaxes or crop circles are aliens or what, you know what I mean? Like we're going to a whole other place of like getting to the core of like, okay, what is this? And at that moment, it's like, yeah, the room explodes because <laughs> there's nowhere that energy is building through the shallow self trying to be deep, but there comes a point where it has to give over and it can't do that in a communal setting. I think that's what happens. Anyway, um, is that a theory or is that a fact? <laughs> I don't know. Play with it, experiment with it, and you tell me. Um, thanks everyone for listening. I'll be back in a month with an interview that I alluded to in the episode, you're probably going to hate me for on the surface. But if you really listen to what we're talking about after we get past the surface level stuff, where I'm trying to bring this guy and where he is and is not willing to go, I think that's an interesting story about the logical mind and the limits of rationality. I will leave it that vague and try to front load you with a way to look at it where you're not going to end up hating me for having him on. Ding. All right. <laughs> With that mystery out of my mouth <laughs> into your ears, go guess who it's going to be. Uh, I will, uh, I'll see you in a month. Thanks for listening to all of this. I know it's tedious after a while and I apologize. Um, but eh, what else are you going to do? The ocean's 90 degrees. He ain't going swimming. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>